0: just the fact that they were there in the SEC Championship game, let alone winning the SEC West title tells you all you need to know. This was one of the programs that improved so much, both offensively and defensively, that it really feels like they're coiled even more this year to take another significant step forward. Hello, welcome to Always College Football. Today is August 2nd. We appreciate you coming to us Wherever it is you're coming to us from, even if it's from the great state of Nebraska. We've seen your reaction to some of my comments about Matt Rule. I'm not suggesting he's on the hot seat, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not saying that he's in trouble. All I'm suggesting is he is stepping into the shoes of a very high-pressured situation. They are expecting him to win. And I've already said it. I'm on the record. I am buying the Nebraska stock. Maybe not for this year, but for the future. I think he's the right man for the job. But if he can't revitalize the program, then I think we're going to be looking at Nebraska completely different in the future, which is why the pressure for Matt Rule, not in year one, he's not on the hot seat, but the pressure is there because Nebraska, in time, does expect to compete for national championships and who wouldn't? They've won them a bunch in my lifetime and I hope that Matt Rule can deliver on some of those expectations in the future. I realize that getting to a bowl game this year would be a great and reasonable expectation. I think that's where most people are at, self-included. I've always said, hey, gradual build until you become a power. For those that do it overnight, like TCU, that's not an easy thing to do, but it does happen. So maybe, just maybe, there's some magic in the air there in Lincoln, Nebraska. Speaking of TCU, today we're going to evaluate some second-year coaches. We're going to go through and look at what they did last season, the situations that they inherited, and what made things so special for them in year number one. We're going to look at some of the best performers. We're going to look at Kalen DeBoer at Washington. We're going to look at Brian Kelly at LSU. We're going to look at Lincoln Riley at USC. And then, of course, we're going to look at Sonny Dykes with what he was able to do at TCU. We continue to be humbled by all the incredible outreach that you guys have given us. The last couple of weeks, you guys have answered the call. Our livelihood, if you will, here at Always College Football is on subscriptions. Our livelihood is on ratings. Our livelihood is on reviews. And it's a grassroots initiative. Look, I do this from my house, man. Like we don't have a crazy budget to go out and market Always College Football. But what we do have, we have a very loyal listener base that continues to grow every single day. And we see you. We see you coming from Africa like Loft Allen Jr. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you writing us a review and tuning in from Africa. It means a lot to us and don't think it goes unnoticed. We see all of you that are leaving reviews and ratings and that are downloading the podcast all over the world. We're grateful to your support. Please continue to spread the word about Always College Football. We're talking college football with a positive spin every single day, and we will continue to do so throughout the regular season, throughout the playoffs, and throughout next spring, and hopefully indefinitely. We also want to say hello to So Cool app. All right, I really appreciate you coming to us because I've been told that I skew older. I don't know if I agree with that. I still think I'm kind of hip and kind of cool. Not that cool, I might add. I'm kind of a nerd. I think you guys have probably gathered that by now, but then again, I still, you know, I'm, it can be kind of cool sometimes every once in a while, maybe a a witty reference or so, perhaps. I don't know. So, so cool app student who's at a big time football program. We appreciate you watching the show, listening to the show and consuming it. However it is you're consuming. It. I encourage all of you to continue to leave us ratings, continue to leave us reviews and please, please, please continue to subscribe and download the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Also want to holler at Richard and Highland Park. Appreciate you, Richard, for reaching out, man. And let me borrow a couple bucks because Highland Park, that's the high rent district right there in Dallas-Fort Worth. So we appreciate you very much for getting to us. We have a lot to talk about today. Second year at Coaches, Pac-12 media rights deals, mail uh, mailbag with a lot of interesting questions this year, and a little bit of recruiting momentum that's being created in the Southeast. I'll explain all that in a little bit, but without much further ado, it's second-year coaches' evaluations and expectations here in year number two. A year ago at this time, we looked at some of the first-year coaches and told you this was probably as chaotic a year as we've ever seen in the coaching carousel. I'm talking about marquee national championship aspirations And coaches that were leaving great jobs, great jobs for what they viewed to be as jobs with slightly higher ceiling. It's kind of a chaotic time in the college football world when you have established head coaches leaving Notre Dame, established head coaches leaving Oklahoma. Well, here we are. And we look at the proof and the pudding of what some of these first year coaches accomplished last year. Now it's time to focus our attention forward. Where can the second-year coaches progress in year number two? Let's start with Brian Kelly. Already talked a little bit about Notre Dame switching down to LSU. Remember, this was a situation at LSU that was brutal. Remember, when he got on campus, we're talking about a team that the last time they were out on the field competing with Ed Ogeron's players... 37 scholarship players on what was a depleted roster, and they had a bad loss to Kansas State in the bowl game, which led to their first losing season since 1999. That was the 2021 LSU Tigers. They go and throw $100 million at Brian Kelly. Everyone made fun of the accent. Everyone made fun of the fit. We didn't because I've been around Brian Kelly long enough to know that that dude's going to get it done. And I'm not sure you can point to a team in, in the entire college football landscape, that improved more from week to week than Brian Kelly's LSU Tigers. Now, I know they came up short against AM. I know they came up short against Georgia in the SEC Championship game, but just the fact that they were there in the SEC Championship game, let alone winning the SEC West title, tells you all you need to know. This was one of the programs that improved so much, both offensively and defensively, that it really feels like they're coiled even more this year to take another significant step forward. Let's think about some of the year one accomplishments. You hold Mike Leach and that vaunted air raid offense to just 16 points. You get down to Auburn, 17-0. They're on the road, injured in hair, and they find a way to rally to get the job done. They beat Florida for the 10th time in 13 years. They destroyed Ole regular season. That at that point, they were undefeated. And then they, of course, beat Nick Saban in Death Valley for the first time since 2010. So check, 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 check. A lot of great accomplishments for Brian Kelly in year number one. But this year, you could actually make a strong argument that they have improved or maintained almost every position. I'm cautiously optimistic that Jaden Daniels is going to be better this year. I'm really optimistic about the depth that they have at running back. They can go five deep at that position and probably not miss a beat. I think that might be, even though Kayshawn Booty was a great, great talent, I think his presence last year was difficult for the coaching staff to get him to buy in and do what he needed to do. So his departure might be addition by subtraction. Now in comes Malik Neighbors. In comes Kyron Lacey. Mason Taylor at tight end is going to continue to get better. And they have other weapons waiting in the wings to take the next step at wide receiver. Offensive line, you had two bookend true freshmen. Now they're going into year number two. They bring in a ton of talented players, not just in the recruiting portal, in the recruiting process, but in the transfer portal as well. This team feels ready to roll. Now, will they ultimately be as good as they were last year? I think they will. Will their win-loss record reflect it? That's what we need to figure out. Last year, 10-4, and great breakthrough season. I think they have every bit of a chance to get to 10 wins yet again. But getting to the SEC Championship game might be very difficult for Brian Kelly and co. Can't wait to see what he does in year number two. If we're grading year one performance, though, A++ for the head coach of the LSU Tigers. Let's go out west and talk about the most controversial? Well, I guess it kind of depends on on who you're asking, because Lincoln Riley is arguably one of the most polarizing figures in the sport as a head coach. A lot of people there in Oklahoma naturally strongly dislike him, who can blame them, considering he not just left But he took the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback with him, took a bunch of other players in the portal, and they obviously became a destination for offensive weapons all over the country. And you think about this, too. He left what was a very stable job. And you think about what Oklahoma had been since 2000. I mean, a program that had had double-digit wins after double-digit wins. I mean, I think they had double-digit conference championships National championship appearances. They did win the national championship there in 2000. So to leave that for a program that had fallen on hard times and had lacked consistency for a really long time to improve their win total from four to 11 in year number one was truly remarkable. What was most impressive was the alignment that was created at SC because of his arrival. Now, a lot that still needs to be figured out for them to take the next step. Last year, it was painfully obvious there in the Pac-12 championship game that they could not match the physical toughness that Utah brought to the field. Now, some would say, look at the performance in the first quarter of that Utah game, up 17-3. They're cruising right along. Caleb Williams has a little bit of a hamstring issue, doesn't have quite the same burst when he takes off. And next thing you know, they get outscored 44-7 from that point forward. And you'd also think, too, two of their losses came on the final snap of the season, or final snap of the game. So you think about where they're at. I think this USC program, even though this year, and a lot of people will probably overreact, and to be honest with you, I think USC could take a slight step back this year. Just a slight step back. Not to the point in which they're a middling program yet again, but I think last year was such a surprise for everyone that now the entire focus of the league is to send USC out a loser. Heading to the Big Ten next year, they've made no friends in that transition. So I think every single team on the calendar has circled the Trojans and have made them their focal point of the offseason. Everything that Lincoln Riley's done to this point has been terrific, but it's going to be very important for him to pay close attention to the progress that's either being made on defense or the changes that might need to be made on defense. I'm never going to suggest coaching changes. This is not my thing. I respect the profession too much. I think it's extremely difficult to get kids to buy in and especially in year one to get them to learn and to adapt to your system is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Plus, if you really look at their personnel, they were depleted on most of their defensive spots. And they didn't have great depth. They didn't have great personnel. By USC standards here, by the way, we're not talking about by standards that would come to be expected from a team that's hoping to get to bowl eligibility. This is USC. And their roster on defense last year was not where it needed to be. They've gone out and they've attacked some of those pieces in the portal to hopefully strengthen and fortify the depth at all three levels, but it still remains to be seen if things will take for Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator here in year number two, Lincoln Riley feels good about their ability to create turnovers, but if you're living and dying by the turnover, if you run into a team that's really safe with the football and really conservative with the football and is not going to put the ball in harm's way, it's going to be tough for them to overcome just by playing defense. They got to take significant strides on that side and until they do, I think it's going to be hard for them to expect to make a lot of noise as it relates to the college football playoff and ultimately the national championship. Let's go to a team that competed for the national championship last year. And y'all remember, last year we were high on TCU. But then no one in their right mind could have anticipated the run that they had. 12 and 0 there in the Big 12. That's the first undefeated the Big 12 team since 2009, and to see what they are able to do in pulling off consistent comebacks, fourth quarter comebacks, miraculous finishes. I think back to the game against Oklahoma State. I think about how they erased that deficit against Kansas State in the regular season. And then how about, I don't want to call it a miracle, because it was executed to perfection against Baylor, where they run the hurricane field goal, they line up, boom right down the middle for the game-winning field goal. So there was a lot to really look at with TCU last year. It was a program that still had talent, but things had just become a little bit stale at the end of Gary Patterson's tenure. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Gary Patterson. I think he's a great coach, and what Sonny Dykes did last year did not immediately change what I thought about his predecessor. I just feel like sometimes when you inject life into a program, you inject energy Into a program, you inject an offensive identity into a program that can lead to real positive results, which, by the way, is why I'm very high on Wisconsin this year. More on that a little bit later. But I think what's most important with what Sonny Dykes has done already, when Texas and Oklahoma leave for the SEC, I think there is absolutely no reason whatsoever why TCU shouldn't be at the top of the food chain, or at least near the top of the food chain in the Big 12 as it relates to profile and possible ceiling and trajectory. I think they are really well positioned in the future because of this most recent run. It gave immediate credibility to Sonny Dykes. It gave immediate credibility to the program. And knowing that the Big 12 might not be as strong top to bottom as far as resources are concerned in the future TCU should be able to compete with anybody moving forward. Now, as far as 2023 is concerned, you guys know I am a little bit down on TCU this year, not to the point in which I think they fall all the way back to six and six. That feels like way too much for me. This team is still have some talent. They did a great job in the portal, brought some guys in from difference making programs where you have guys that are probably going to be able to help you immediately. But to be able to create the magic that they had last year where the ball seemingly always bounced their way, I think it's going to be difficult to recreate. And to be honest with you, I do think there's going to be a bit of a national championship hangover. Now, that was a really bad performance. And I think if you played that game 100 times, it wouldn't get sideways like that again. I really don't think it would have. They were their own worst enemy. They were totally shook by the time they got off the bus. And the second they went through warm-ups and they looked to the other end of the field and they said, oh my goodness, we don't look like that. We don't have players that look like that. They were never quite the same, as evidenced by Max Duggan being inaccurate on this first third down throw. So I think when you look at TCU, the, the height of their ceiling is still really high, but I just don't know if they're going to be able to scratch the surface of that ceiling here in year number two for TCU. But here, when you think about this too, they have one of the toughest schedules in the Big 12. I mean, last year, it was somewhat manageable. I mean, it was obviously the round-robin schedule. This year, it's not the round-robin schedule, and they draw arguably the four best teams in the Big 12. You go to Kansas State. You go to Texas Tech. You have Texas at your place, and then you go to Oklahoma. You can make a case, and I'm not saying that that's you know one through four on the order and any order that you might have them, But I think you ask most people that have surveyed the landscape in the Big 12, they would say those four teams are at the worst in the top half of the league as of right now. I would have all four of those teams in my preseason top 25 or at least close to it. So that's going to be a difficult track knowing that three of those games are on the road and the Texas Longhorns, who are the most talented team in the Big 12, They're going to be there in Fort Worth. So it could be a slight step back for TCU in year number two, but it doesn't change the perception of the program that's already been built under Sonny Dyke's leadership up to this point. Let's go finally to Kalen DeBoer. Now, I think Kalen DeBoer at Washington was a little bit of an under-the-radar hire. And, And I think there weren't a lot of people that were real familiar with his style, with what he has done in the past with his pedigree as both an offensive coordinator and a head coach. So I think there was a lot of uncertainty when he took over a program that just felt like they were kind of stuck. They had talent. They had recruited well. The previous regime had done a pretty decent job of getting in top-flight talent, but for whatever reason, it just didn't take, and they underachieved drastically in those two seasons. But you think about this. They had the second-biggest win boost in the Power Five last year. Seven-win jump. From five wins, or excuse me, four wins to 11 wins in year number one. That's the fifth 11 win season in Washington history, and just the second since 2000. So it's been a while since they've been able to match and exceed those expectations. And for his efforts, Kalen DeBoer won Pac 12 Coach of the Year, and rightfully so, even though it was tough competition there in the Pac 12 with what Lincoln Riley did and what Kyle Whittingham continues to do, what Jonathan Smith did. De DeBoer bringing home the trophy, I thought made a lot of sense. You think about what they were able to do, though, this offseason. It feels actually, to me, like Washington's best might be right in front of them. Not only were they able to keep Ryan Grubb, their offensive coordinator, which was a massive coup, I might add, but can, especially considering who was going after him, and there was reports of Alabama pursuing Ryan Grubb. There were reports of Texas A&M. Being interested in him becoming their offensive coordinator, he spurned both, decided to stay at Washington to continue building with what they had. They also retained Michael Penix, who did have opportunities of potentially making the leap to the NFL, but I thought it was a good decision for him to come back. It's a good quarterback class this upcoming year with Caleb Williams and Drake May and others, but with another great season, I think Michael Penix could vault up draft boards. And I think he's going to have one of those great seasons because you look at the weapons that he has back at his disposal, outstanding wide receiver core, really, really solid offensive line. The one question mark for Washington this year will be that secondary. That secondary was problematic last year. But when you think about what they had to deal with and the injuries that they had to endure, seven defensive backs missed time for the Washington Huskies last year. That's going to be really difficult in a league that is headlined by quarterbacks across the board. Just think about the quarterbacks you have to face from cam rising. Obviously last year, Dorian Thompson Robinson at UCLA, Caleb Williams, Bo Nix at Oregon. I know Oregon state didn't have much of quarterback situation, but this year they do with DJ Uyungle likely taking the reins Of that position. You look too at what Washington State has with Cam Ward, a really good quarterback whose offense I think is going to flourish this year with that new push-the-ball vertical style of attack. Jaden Delora at Arizona, another excellent player that if he could cut down the interceptions, had 13 last year, if he can trim that number down to eight, seven, or six while still making those great plays that he made time and time again. Then I think Arizona is going to become a player as well. So if you're not good in the secondary in the Pac 12 this year, look out and buckle up because you're going to be facing some passing attacks that are going to put a lot of pressure on that unit collectively.
1: This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details.
0: Here's where we're at right now with the Pac-12. And it's easy for a lot of people to evaluate this as far as dollars and cents are concerned. But I'm just going to urge everybody, let's just not focus on it exclusively from the numbers. Okay, because the numbers they don't necessarily tell the whole story, and there's you know, there's financial backing that can be found elsewhere, a la Oregon and Nike, and you know, you could find money if you really need to. So let's just look at this for just a half second from where the world currently sits. As of right now, this instant, Colorado's going. USC and UCLA are already gone. Arizona might go, but They're in meetings alongside Arizona State and Northern Arizona at the Arizona Board of Regents where they're making a decision on behalf of all the Arizona schools. And according to sources that are knowledgeable, the Board of Regents would prefer all the Arizona schools to stay together. Now, the California Board of Regents wanted the California schools to stay together. And UCLA said, no, 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 we're we're good. We're off and running. So Arizona might very well find their way to the Big 12. But let's just think about where that leaves the rest of the eight programs that are currently operating under the Pac-12's umbrella. As of right now, in 2024, remember, we are implementing a new playoff system. So I guess playoffs will be the 2025 playoffs, but the 2024 regular season. We're going to a 12-team system with six automatic qualifiers. And the Pac-12, as of this instant, would actually receive one of those automatic bids, meaning that if the 12-team format were in existence, guess who would have gone to the playoff the last two years? Utah. Utah, so far, has been reluctant to engage with the Big 12 at the moment. More on that a little bit later. So Utah wants to kind of maintain the status quo They've won the league the last couple of years and access to the playoff might be a higher priority to them than getting the additional revenue from the Big 12 television contract. Same can be said for Oregon and Washington. Washington had a terrific year last year, won 11 games, had a breakthrough season, and might very well find themselves in the driver's seat in the future for the Pac-12. Same can be said for Oregon. You'd think Phil Knight Is concerned about writing a 10, 12, 15 million dollar check to Oregon Athletics to supplement what might be an exclusive streaming deal with Apple. If they're getting 20 million to school from Apple, you think Phil Knight's concerned about writing a check to make up the difference between the Big 12 and the Pac 12 revenue if it means that Oregon is a big fish in a small pond as it relates to getting to the college football playoff? I don't think it's an issue. We just have to remember that some of these decisions, people are wondering, why is Utah not going? Why is Oregon not going? Why is Washington not going? Why are they not listening to Big 12 overtures? Look at the money that might be made up in the Big 12 as compared to staying put in the Pac-12. Well, take into account the college football playoff access, because to me, access to the college football playoff might actually be more beneficial for your program long term Then the $10, $12, $15 million that you might make up by jumping ship to a new league. Now, if you're Arizona, if you're Colorado, if you're bottom feeders right now in the Pac-12, by all means, go take the extra money and figure it out from that point forward. But if you're at the top of the league and messing with the status quo could impact your postseason eligibility, then stay put and let's just see where the chips fall here in 2024 and beyond. Time now to dive into the mailbag where we so appreciate all of you submitting your questions on a daily basis. We're getting more and more every single day. Continue to submit them to our email, alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. You can also submit your questions on social media at alwayscfb on both Instagram and on Twitter. Coops, where are we going today, buddy? All
2: right. We're going to start with Cam in Ohio. He asks, when you were a player, could you tell early in camp if the team was going to be really
0: good? What were some of the signs that you looked for? You know, what's funny is <laughs> I'd love to tell you that a that, hey, scrimmage one, that that's when we knew or maybe it was scrimmage two. Or maybe it was even earlier than that. We're sitting there in, in summer conditioning and the guys were just totally bought in. We had 100% attendance at the 7 a.m. workout every Friday. I mean, th- there's a million, of t- million times when you could really survey where you're at. Problem is, I've seen it all go by the wayside really quickly. <laughs> and granted, at, at Alabama, for instance, we always started pretty fast. I mean, we played against Clemson, played against Virginia Tech played against Penn State early. This is in my career. They've since played against West Virginia and Louisville and, and USC and, and other great teams, Wisconsin. But what I've found in talking to coaches, and and the coaches' most sleepless night is going to be the f- night before the first game of the year. Because you hope that you've done everything that you possibly can to get the guys ready. You hope that you have personnel that won't get exposed. Now, you might know there might be some deficiencies here. Hey, we got to be really smart about how we rotate that specific position. For instance, if you have a liability at, say, defensive end, well, you don't want that defensive end in the game and a critical down and distance. I mean, you have to be really smart in being able to self-assess where your program and where your roster's at. But I think most coaches would tell you, man, we don't know what we have. Until you get out there and do it against somebody else that has been schematically practicing to take advantage of your weaknesses or perceived weaknesses and to make sure that your strengths aren't used as an asset in the game. You don't know what you have. So I think the biggest adjustment, and we've talked about this in the past, it's not so much from scrimmage one to scrimmage two to the first game of the year or from practice 13 to practice 14 to the second scrimmage to the first game of the year, the biggest adjustment is actually from the first game to the second game because that's when you can really figure things out. And that's why I've always felt like playing a highly regarded opponent in the first game is actually beneficial. Now, some people have gone with a completely different approach. For instance, Michigan, their first three games – very, very winnable, all non-conference opponents, all of which should be one-sided affairs. But do you really know a lot about yourself playing against teams that you should comfortably beat? Or are you going to learn more about yourself being an LSU playing against Florida State? I've always felt like you learn a little bit more about yourself, and the urgency in camp was a little bit greater knowing that that week one opponent is going to come out swinging. So I I wish I could answer this question maybe a little better for you, Cam. I I just can't because I think every coach would tell you, hey, I think we know. I hope we know. But we don't really know until we get to week zero and play our first game or week one and play our first game.
2: Very fair. Next question comes from Matt in Utah. It has a lot to do with what you were talking about with the Pac-12 here. He asks, I'm not sure I understand the talk of the Big 12 adding either Arizona or Arizona State. In football terms only, please tell me what makes them valuable. Neither one of them has done anything in the sport since the BCS started. On the other hand, you have Utah, who has had an undefeated season and is a two-time defending Pac-12 champs.
0: Multiple undefeated seasons, Matt. Come on, man. Think about 2004 and 2008. All right, so I, I don't want to forget the Urban Meyer era there with Alex Smith and company. So uh, they've had multiple undefeated seasons, but here's here's what I would say about Utah heading to the Big 12. I already kind of referenced it. Utah likes where they're at right now. And how could you blame them? They've been to consecutive Rose Bowls. They've won the league in consecutive years. They've played against some of the best teams in the league and have had great success in the process. They've been on the cusp of a college football playoff berth, feels like multiple times. So when you think about where Utah's at, do they really want to mess with the status quo? Uh, I don't think they do, especially knowing that the 12-team playoff's coming. So what, and this is from ESPN's Ian Fitzsimmons, who talked on SiriusXM about what he had been told about Utah's relationship with the Big 12. Quote, Utah isn't exactly returning calls, end quote. He was told, quote, Utah doesn't want to appear to be following their rival in BYU. We all know that college athletics can be pretty petty, but I mean, look, we're talking about your future. Pick up the phone, end quote. That's where I disagree with him is at the very end, because I don't know right now, especially knowing the new landscape that's coming to college athletics. I cannot tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the landscape is better in the Big 12 for Utah than it is in the Pac-12, because I think their ability to potentially dominate the conference still remains very real. Whereas if they go to the Big 12, will they still be able to dominate the same way they have up to this point? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe so, maybe not. But either way, they're in a pretty good position to get an automatic qualifier berth into the college football playoff in recent times. I think the same can be said for Washington. I think the same can be said for Oregon. But if you're Arizona, if you're Colorado... If you're at or near the bottom, and as of right now, you are not competitive at the top of the league, then by all means, take more money. Go. It makes total sense why they would entertain an offer from the Big 12, while Utah would remain still and evaluate what things might look like in 2024 in a new playoff format, 2025 and beyond. I'm going to ask a follow-up on that, though. Utah has been, you know, Kyle Whittingham
2: has been at Utah forever. Do you risk kind of, and we'll call this the Frank Beamer rule, where somebody's one coach is at a place and he makes that program dynamite and always competing. But when that coach leaves or retires, they fall off. Wouldn't you rather position yourself into a tougher league and, and bring somebody else in as the
0: head coach so you don't risk falling off kind of like a Virginia Tech? Well, I think Virginia Tech's a unique situation. Uh, I understand the comp there. Um, but at this point, and look, there's been rumors about Kyle Whittingham retiring forever. Uh, the guy works out seven days a week. I, I don't get the sense that he's going to be fulfilled doing anything other than what he's doing right now. Uh, and I think if anything, they'd promote from within and go with a, probably their, their defensive coordinator. and He'd be the next head coach or whoever it ends up being. I'm not sure it really matters at this point. But no, I, I, don't, I think being a big fish in, in a pond that you've dominated, at least for the last two years, is a real positive. Uh, if Kyle Whittingham decides to shut it down, would they be better served going to the Big 12? Perhaps. Is the Big 12 stronger? Is it tougher? Uh, I don't know if I necessarily totally subscribe to that argument. I I have a ton of respect for Oregon and what they're doing on the recruiting trail and how they continue to position themselves really well with five-star and four-star talent across the country. I like the trajectory that Washington's on, and if they can maintain what they're doing right now by keeping staff continuity, which I think is unlikely because I think Ryan Grubb will get a head job at some point in the future, but if they can keep Kalen DeBoer, they're in a pretty good spot to continue to ascend and become a destination player for offensive skill that wants to be a part of that offense. So I I think I understand what you're saying, but you can't worry about something five years down the road if there's been no indicator of that coach potentially retiring. So I know there's been buzz But I don't feel as if it's substantiated buzz. I feel like it's rumor mill. And Utah is still, regardless of what league they're in, they're not a program that I would bet against. All right, final thought here. Shane Beamer is rolling right now. Rolling. One of the biggest recruiting wins of his tenure came down on Tuesday when they uh, brought in five-star Dylan Stewart, from the Washington, D.C. area. He's the number 15 overall recruit in the 2024 class. That's according to ESPN. He's six foot six, 245-pound prospect, number three defensive end, and they beat out the Ohio State Buckeyes for his services. This is massive for Shane Beamer. What I think is really interesting, for those that have kind of sat down and talked with Shane Beamer, there's something real genuine about his approach. I think he's very honest. I think he's very transparent. It's pretty obvious where he stands on certain things. He's just himself. He feels very relatable to me. So it's clear that he's making an early impact on some of these recruits. He's already done a decent job in the portal. But expect more and more recruits to consider South Carolina in the future. If they're going up to D.C. and getting one of the top prospects in the region, that's only going to help. Because when one five-star goes, it's amazing how many other five-stars take a peek and say, hang on. He's going, maybe I should take a peek at South Carolina as well. We see similar things happening at Auburn. We see similar things happening at other places as well. But a little shout out to Shane Beamer for getting the job done. I know it's a long way to the signing day. I know that they're not there yet. I know it's not quite to the point where they're at the finish line. You got to get to the finish line and get Dylan Stewart to sign on the dotted line. But a lot of momentum being created for the Gamecocks right now on the trail. And it's hard to ignore it. That's for sure. For all of us here at Always College Football, we so appreciate All of your continued support. It helps us out immensely. If you can continue to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, it means a lot to us. And I know if you guys leave us a review, we'll give you a shout out. Hit us up in our social media. Give us a follow on our social media as well. Always CFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. You can get content there. Basically around the clock, Jack is always working on that. So we appreciate his work and emphasis in trying to grow that page and trying to interact as much as we possibly can with you. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jack, Mark, Jake, I'm Greg. Another special shout-out to a couple of interns that are listening with us here today. Sam and Lauren, we appreciate you being with us. Even though, Sam, you're from New York City, I know you love college football in New York. I know you love college football in New York. Now, Lauren, you're from Georgia. Georgia you didn't have a choice you had to love college football so we're glad that you're here with us and we appreciate you taking some time to spend some time with us here on always college football for all of us here at always college football we wish you a wonderful day and remember it's always college football hey guys it's greg mcelroy thanks for watching always college football make sure you like rate and subscribe to espn's youtube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast